Welcome to Change Making Connections, the podcast where transformative talks on social justice, leadership, and beyond become more than just words. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I invite a global change leader to talk with me about the strategies and tactics that they use to cultivate deep transformation in their lives, their communities, and their organizations. Tune in to Change Making Connections for your monthly dose of inspiration and insight. Let's create a ripple of change together. Hello and welcome to Change Making Connections, the show where we talk with change leaders about how to support deep transformation in our lives, communities, and organizations. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month I talk with change makers about the joys, challenges, strategies, and possibilities in working for social justice in a variety of contexts. Today, I am so excited to be talking with Judith LeBlanc. Judith is a member of the Caddo Nation and has endless appetite for fry bread and intertribal culinary delight. As the executive director of Native Organizers Alliance, she has learned many secrets to the art of making good fry bread. She leads a national native training and organization network, which supports tribes, traditional societies, and grassroots native community groups in urban and tribal communities. Judith is part of a growing circle of leaders in Indian country who understand the necessity for an organized, durable ecosystem of Native leaders and organizers who lead with traditional values. Native Organizers Alliance conducts learning circles, trainings, and strategic planning sessions to support Native leaders in organizing the grassroots movements for structural reform, leading to Native sovereignty and racial equity for all. And there's a lot more that Judith does as well, and we'll put the full beautiful bio in the show notes. So Judith, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to actually talk with you today. And um, one of the questions that I have for change makers is, about the type of leadership, the philosophies, the practice of leadership that we need to meet our current challenges in this cultural climate. What kinds of leadership as change makers do we need to move us towards justice and liberation? Well, I'm very honored to be considered a part of the circle of change makers. And I think it's the style of leadership that we need in the 21st century is one that recognizes that leadership is not a personal or an individual endeavor, that in fact, leadership flows from the circle that you are in. That since the beginning of time, Native peoples have been organizing. I'd like to say since dirt, we've been organizing ourselves into community. And in every community and in every circle, everybody has a role to play. One of the dominant narratives in this country is that there's one smart individual, usually a white guy, who comes up with an idea that makes everything change. Uh, I think recently, for example, President Biden was referred to as the negotiator during the debt ceiling negotiations. People in the media kept saying he's just a great negotiator. He always has been. When, in fact, there were many things in motion around those negotiations that compelled action, namely that Wall Street was worried about the disruption to the market. And they were telling both, both the Republicans in Congress as well as the administration, get this done. Get this done. It could be very bad for the, for the economy. So it's not that President Biden isn't a 
good negotiator, but there were things beyond him that were moving and compelling action and dialogue and compromise. Even with great scientific discoveries, you know, some people think, oh, Edison, Thomas Edison discovered electricity. No, there was a whole team of others who were working in the lab day after day after day. And frankly, from an indigenous point of view, we have always relied on collective action. And it's something that I think for 21st century leadership, it is important to understand that you are only as strong as the circle or the collective you're working in or the community you are working with uh, is strong. So, Oh, that's so important and so inspiring to really build community and, and trust the community you're working with and recognize that we all need to work together to, to create a better world, co-create a better world. Um, how do you help people see the various roles that they can play in this change process? How do you help catalyze people into taking on whatever roles they feel they can contribute to the social change effort? So since the beginning of time, Native communities have always worked in a way that, that required that people take up responsibilities and be held accountable. You know, in the 21st century, people have to find ways of learning what their role and responsibility is by being in community with others. And in the organizing that we do in Indian country, you all you have to do is is sit for just a little bit in any given community, be it in an urban area or on a reservation. And there will be people who you can always count on who come out when there's something disastrous, something that it's needed for the community. There are always people who will, they'll cook something. They'll bring a meal. They may not want to lead the meeting. They may not want to be in a meeting, but they'll cook a meal and contribute it. There are others who will pray, who will conduct ceremony to support a community struggle. And so it, leadership has to be able to see the strengths and what people are bringing into the circle in order to organize people to work together, to be in walking on the same path together. I, for an example, we're working with a, a traditional women's society, the Brave Plant Society, on the Ahantawan territory, the Yankton Sioux tribe. And we've been working with the traditional women's society, the tribal leadership, and the treaty committee for, for nearly seven years on regaining co-management of the Missouri River bioregion on a 150-mile stretch of the Missouri River. And so the tribal leadership, the elected tribal leadership, does not play the same role as the grassroots and the traditional women's society in coming to terms of how to become able to play out our inherent and legal role as caretakers of Mother Earth and of Minnesota, Missouri River. And so it is natural that, therefore, how to find ways to work together, how to strengthen the tribal leaderships 
technical and scientific capacity, but also how do we, traditional teachings and the spirit of the people and community support into that endeavor. And so each in each meeting, in every initiative, we find people step up, step forward, and do what they believe will make a contribution. It's part of it's the the, the magic gumbo of organizing in all communities. Mm. Right before we got on the call, you were talking about something that um, some work that you're doing right now, and you just mentioned another example. Can you talk a little bit about what you're really excited about and the work you're doing right now in community? Well, one of the biggest and most historic characteristics of the 21st century is that Native peoples are having a lot of firsts. We just had the first Native restaurant to receive the prestigious James Beard Award, Owami, in Minneapolis. We just had the first Native astronaut. We just have had, in the last two years, the first Native directed, produced, starred in TV show about life in urban 21st century Oklahoma City. So we we have interrupted the narrative. We have, due to the political moment, been able to be a part of conversations and part of the solution process because we're facing so many layer upon layer of crisis, from climate crisis to safe communities, with economic crisis. And so what I'm excited about is the recognition of our political grassroots power. You know, the 2020 elections, the Native vote made the difference in key battleground states. Many times, the political parties and scientists and academics have said we were statistically insignificant. What we proved in 2020 is that we're politically significant, that we mobilized in the most infectious places in this country, like the Navajo Reservation, the Menominee Reservation, Wisconsin, all across Indian country, we mobilized the largest Indian vote ever. So did everybody else. So we played alongside of everybody else who was concerned about the future and how to address the multi-layered crises. But the difference is this, unlike the Black community or the labor movement or the Mexican-American or Latinx communities, nobody in the political structure had ever ever recognized our political power as being important, as being critical. And the truth is that we made the difference. And what, what did that result in? Well, The result was the Biden administration transition team acknowledged the power, and then we organized and mobilized grassroots Native people to press the transition team to nominate Deb Holland for the Secretary of the the Department of Interior. First time a Native would be nominated for for the executive branch, the government. We only had the first two Native women elected to Congress in 2018. So that grassroots pressure, we mobilized along with Illuminative and a national narrative change. This the organization we work with, 19,000 people and over 200 tribes pressing the transition team. And they did. They nominated that. And then we mobilized and organized for over 40,000 letters to be sent 
to the Senate in support of her nomination. And so for us, and for me personally, I never thought I would live to see a Native woman leading the most important department in the federal government when it comes to the health and welfare of Indian country. And so I'm excited about voter engagement. I'm excited about organizing our voters to have, have a seat at the table, to, to raise the issues that are our concern for us in 2023. And I know in 2024, and I know in, in Minnesota, in Minneapolis in particular, there's an election almost every year. And the Native vote is a critical vote in Minneapolis. And I, I believe that we can make a difference when talking about solutions to some of these big, big crisis problems. Yeah. Yeah, those are really important historic wins. And I appreciate you highlighting some of the ways that that happened. Um, and you also pointed to the role, the relationship between grassroots organizing and what some might call kind of working within the system for change. And sometimes in some social justice circles, I see those set up as binaries, like you're either or. Um, how do you see the relationship between kind of shifting systems and grassroots organizing? Well, I think thinking in a binary way is counterproductive for all of us because life is not binary. It's not right or wrong always. There are decision points when you have to decide which direction you're going, but there is an array of choices that, that must be made. And so when you look at the organizing of power and shifting power, bringing the power into visibility, the power of our communities, the power of the grassroots, we have to have an understanding that it's inside and outside. If you're going to make long-term, long-lasting structural reforms, you have to have a grassroots space that is moving with ideas and, and able to highlight what is necessary for the communities to live in a good way. And you have to work with allies and those who come from, from communities and are in elected positions or appointed positions. The election of uh, Deb Pollan and Sharice Davids to Congress in 2018 or Deb's confirmation to become the Secretary of the Department of Interior was not a destination. It's it's the beginnings of uh, creating a new new conditions, a new groundwork for mobilizing the grassroots. So elections are a snapshot of political power. It's a snapshot. And sometimes that snapshot, not sometimes, more often than not, the snapshot will change within a month of the elections about which direction the power is shifting. Is it moving in the direction of meeting the needs of our communities, ensuring economic justice, racial justice, or is it shifting in the other direction? And so for grassroots organizing, we're building power for change. We are articulating the needs of our community. And those kind of structural reforms of the system are critical. And for Indian country, we know that our sovereignty as tribal nations will never be achieved individual tribe by tribe. It's only going to come about when there's a more deeply democratic political system and a more deeply democratic economic system. And so that means working across all of the various 
uh, sectors who suffer due to the exploitation and, and discrimination and systemic racism, working together to make structural reforms within the system until we achieve health and well-being in all of our communities. Mm-hmm. I'm just letting what you just said ripple through me. As you work across all those different challenges, what have you found particularly challenging in creating those alliances and creating that kind of structural change? What have you found challenging and how have you met those challenges? One of the challenges that Native peoples, tribal communities and Native peoples in urban areas, one of the challenges we face is that we have been locked out and sidelined from participating in the big debates, the solutions, the all, all that goes into creating better conditions for our communities. And oftentimes, policymakers on all levels of government, they do not understand the history of the, the historic district discrimination and sidelining that Native peoples have faced. And that becomes a problem because you find yourself, when you're meeting with a congressperson or meeting with someone on the city council or county uh, committee, of having to do a, almost a American Indian history 101. Like we started here and this is where we're at. This is where we need to go. Because it is a traditional way of approaching all things is to understand where did we come from? Where are we going? What is our horizon goal? And so therefore, what do we do right now to make change happen? And so that hinders us when, because people are coming from such a deficit of knowledge that we have to kind of give a speed wrap and then get into these are the this is the situation today. This is where we want to go. This is what we would like to do together with you. So, you know, for example, very few people in Minneapolis know that the American Indian Movement was founded in 1967 due to police killings of Native people in the city. 1967. The problem with policing has been in Minneapolis for generations now. And that more Native people are killed and stopped and harassed than Black folks in Minneapolis. And that we have a higher rate of fatalities nationally from police killing, from law enforcement shooting, shootings. We don't want to go around saying, hey, we, we get killed more often. The Minneapolis police has been targeting us since 1977. So we have to have a spiritual values-directed strategy in Indian country in order to intervene in the challenges of how do you work with allies and have authentic relationships and move together and not be caught in the past, be looking at the future because our future is tied with, with the vast majority of people in this country. So for example, when Native people are talking about climate change and the solutions and how to protect water or regain uh, land, we're talking 
about something that is of a majority concern. We're representing a majority because in this country and globally, majority of people want something done about climate crisis. So when we're advocating, it's not a special interest group. It's not a separate little issue. It's really speaking on behalf of the majority. And for Native people, we have to adopt that stance, that we're not just a special interest group that's you know, facing systemic racism. We're actually concerned about the fate of humanity and Mother Earth. Yeah, your, your statement that our future is tied is really powerful. Um, that we, oh, go ahead. If we could have achieved tribal sovereignty by ourselves on our own, we would have done it, but we cannot. We cannot have, get our treaties fulfilled without being totally woven into the struggles for social justice that are underway in every community. So for example, healthcare is a treaty right. We died, we fought wars, we gave up land, we signed agreements, on the basis that healthcare would be provided from birth until death. That is not guaranteed. And so it is a treaty right, but in the final analysis, it's a human right. Everybody should be guaranteed that right. And so when we struggle for, you know, more funding from the Indian health services, the support of our Indian health clinics in urban areas, it is a part of a larger issue in society how to guarantee healthcare for all, because it's a human right. Yeah, and I think the current system, kind of dominant culture, participates a lot in the divide and conquer. So if Native communities get it, then somehow African-American communities or queer communities are denied it, like, as though there aren't enough to go around if we have a paradigm shift in how we understand power, how we distribute resources, what's considered a human right, and it seems to me as change makers, part of the task is to redefine the paradigm so that we work with one another instead of kind of sacrificing one another to try to, to buy into the scarcity narrative. But it's a pretty powerful narrative in U.S. dominant culture and politics. And it, uh, has, it has always been. Yeah. From the beginning of time, mm -hmm. when you look at how the, the colonists tried to divide white people from native people and freed slaves. They were pitting. They were saying, oh no, we don't want black and Indians to have the right to vote, but you white folks, okay. But really the basis for collaboration and, and, and being in solidarity with one another was the reality that colonization was, a, was led by a small handful of really rich white guys not women, and that they were constructing a government to maintain their economic and political power. And so from the very beginnings, that divide and conquer and the idea that if someone gets ahead, someone else has to give something up, that is the dominant narrative. And it's, there's a very interesting book by Heather McGee called The Some of Us All, and it is the most popularly written description of the history of systemic racism. And I think it's important for people to understand that, that even in our families, if someone does better, it isn't worse for someone else than our family. And therefore, how do we work together to support one another in it? 
in our families, in our communities, and, and then across the country. You take, for example, there's a mine that's being projected to be built, the largest open pit gold mine in North America, up in Alaska, in at the headwaters of a river, which is which is where uh, salmon spawn. Mm. Oh no! Ninety-five percent of the of the native Alaskans who live along that river do subsistence fishing, and and the truth is that anybody who hunts or fishes, there's a common stake at having a river that is not destroyed by the trailings of this gold mine. On top of it, it's not even an essential, you know, national security mineral. It's gold. And so we're seeing this around many different environmental struggles where it's clear, just like at Standing Rock back in 2016, the struggle that the Standing Rock Sioux tribe led and that 10,000, 10, over 10,000 people responded to and came to the Standing Rock Reservation the struggle was not just for the ten thousand, the drinking water of ten thousand members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. It was really on behalf of seventeen million people who live downstream on the Missouri. Seventeen million people who love, live, work, play along the shores of the Missouri. That's that's perhaps the most dramatic example you can lift up as to how our future. Mother Earth's future, our collect, our descendants, are depending on us to f- to walk on the same path. So powerful, and it speaks to how we all have an investment in this change. That we might be coming from different identity locations or different layers of access or denial of power. That when we come together, we all have a stake in protecting this Mother Earth, and some of that is going to involve rethinking priorities. Like, do we really need gold? Do we really need to sacrifice things for something that only some of us get to benefit from and it's not even kind of essential to life uh, in the way that water is, for instance, or or salmon is? How do you recommend, uh, or you mentioned allies and showing up for one another. What is it that you would like as an organizer? What is it you'd like to see allies do and what like what do you need from allies and how do you like to show up as an ally or co-conspirator i think it's being a good relative that's what solidarity is that's what being a a so-called ally is being a good relative and to understand yourself in relationship to others understand our communities in relationship to other communities you know, people from an indigenous framework, you know, people have been taught through origin stories and, and the belief systems, many, many tribes, over 500 tribes, that you can be in a situation, and you know as well as I do, Beth, when you meet somebody, you size them up. You think about what are they like. You're listening to them. They're telling you things about themselves and you're sizing them up. And in fact, you're kind of creating a little story in your head about who they are. But the truth is that's a perception. That's a perception. What we all must do is to develop perspective, to get that eagle eye point of view where you understand where did people come from? 
What is their horizon? Where are they moving? Who are they in relationship with? What are they doing? Practice-based evidence. Once you struggle for that eagle-eyed perspective, then you can truly understand how to be a good relative to someone else. And you don't have to like someone to be a good relative. You have to understand that you're in relationship, that we're all in relationship to one another. Mm. You, you, you look at the economy, you look at politics, you look at any arena of life. There are a lot of things in motion and they all have impact on one another. In, and it may not be in the immediate, but we do know that what happened in the past has impacted on us. We also know that our descendants 30 years from now are going to point back to 2023 and say, what did our ancestors do about the problem of clean water, the lack of it, the lack of access? They will point back to what we do. That is, that is a, a responsibility that you have to carry because the past and the future only come together in one place, and that's in the present. So what we do matters, and therefore being good relatives and walking side by side with all those who, are, who, who not only suffer, but all those who are creating solutions. Our communities are not circles of victims. They are people who are trying to figure out what is the best way forward. What have we learned from the past? How do we get to the future horizon of an end to systemic racism and the achievement of our sovereign rights? Mm -hmm. we got to figure that out in the immediate and walk together with all those who share the values of living together in peace and for the welfare of, of humanity and Mother Earth. I'm smiling because you always just inspire me so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that I try to work with, I teach gender and women's studies among some of the other work I do. And one of the things I really invite students to do is not just learn about all the injustices in the world, though that's super important, but also look to the creative solutions that especially communities are finding to generate the kind of world they want to live in and to cr create change. Because I do think, in fact, we're talking in class this week about the practice of developing hope as a practice, not a kind of Pollyanna hope that doesn't face the realities of the crises we're in, but uh, a hope that recognizes that people have created change for as long as people have existed and that they're not victims and that there's a lot of creativity in generating solutions and working together in community. So I'm curious what what you've spoken to a few, about a few things, but what gives you hope in the work and the organizing you're doing? Anything beyond what you've uh, what you lean on when when you're having hard days? What gives me hope is is that there is a continually growing circle of people who have become aware of how they're in relationship to others. And it has been across the board. I mean, you look at what happened after the murder of George Floyd. The New York Times reported that over one third of the adult population took to the streets and marched for an end to systemic racism. Small towns, big cities. That wasn't even the case during the civil rights movement where big historic changes were made. 
But we're living in a moment where if something is wrong, grassroots people of all races and nationality and ages realize they have to publicly oppose it. No matter how much fear and intimidation there may be in the dominant narrative about protest and and the and the need for for being good relatives, people go out and they and they show their love. And you know, really power without love is is weak. It's weak. Uh, Dr. King had a very powerful statement where power without love is also corrupting. So we have to show our love of community in a public way. We have to, and I believe people are doing that. You look at where we've been over the last several years with I Don't Know More and the protest movement that developed to stir up awareness of the Tassan's pipelines, or you look at uh, Black Lives Matter, or you look at the Fight for 15, the fast food workers who were going out on strike and the kind of support that they got, or the dreamers, the undocumented young people who took their stand, or the women's match, and of course, Standing Rock. And the truth is that we're working towards and building a decisive majority of people who want a just society. We might not all agree on how to get there, but we are bound by certain values-driven action. And I think one of the commentaries is that, oh, we live in a very polarized society. You know, it's 50-50, people upon, well, you know, that image or that reality is only, is only perpetrated because people are looking at what, what is going on at the grassroots and the amazing things that are going on in communities. And oftentimes the political solutions are posed as let's get two diametrically opposed opinions about, say, healthcare, and put them in a room and come up with a compromise. That's not a compromise. That's not the way to work on a compromise. You have to get people together who agree on values. Do we believe that healthcare is an urgent necessity for our people? If you all agree to that, then come into the room and let's craft a way to go forward, given the fact that we don't all necessarily agree on how to get there. That's a whole different approach to politics. And I think that's, it's not about hands across the aisle or everything must be bipartisan. No, it's about values. It's about uniting around common values so that we can have the trust and develop the kind of muscle how do you come to a proposed solution where you're bringing the majority with you? Because no change is going to happen in this country, including achieving tribal sovereignty or native sovereignty or healthcare being a human right or education being a right, not a privilege. None of those things will happen until a majority of people stand up and get behind that idea. Yeah, the the redefining strategy to focus on a commonality of values and be able to stay in the conversation aligned with those values while figuring out different strategies for getting there is just so important. Um, and I'm sure your organizing experience has helped to create some of that. We don't necessarily see that a lot in at least electoral kinds of politics. 
I mentioned, you mentioned earlier power with love, power without love is weak and referenced Martin Luther King. And I've been doing a lot of reading and listening to people who, uh, social change agents, movement strategy center, and so on, who really center love. And when I talk about that with some colleagues or students, they get really skeptical for good reason about the language of love. I'm curious what role you think love has in creating a better world and what you mean by love. Love is not a valentine. It's not all romantic hugs and kisses. Love is a discipline. Love is where you hold other people accountable for their actions. Love is respecting other people enough to be accountable. Love is about responsibility. And that connection between discipline and responsibility makes love a very powerful way to motivate people. Because if you're acting out of anger or hatred, you are going to be unstrategic. If you, you know yourself in your own personal relationships. Whenever I've had the worst arguments ever with a friend or a relative, it's because I was, I was motivated by anger, yeah. not insight, not reflection, not what, what, what am I, what am I, where did I come from? Where do I want to go after this conversation? So what should I do right now? How did I get here? What should I do? It's lashing out. It's a lack of spiritual discipline. Because when something goes wrong and there's anger and division, you have to reflect. Reflection is the most powerful leadership development tool we have. Reflection, thinking about things and analyzing practice-based evidence. How did we, how did we do on this? How did we walk? What was our attitude? What was accomplished? And what could we do better in the next round? The reflection being a super powerful leadership tool, it's one of the things that and feminism has always been really important. The, as you know, the kind of you take action, but then you reflect on what works and you circle back. And the idea that anger has a certainly has a place in the world, but can you use it as a catalyst and still be rooted in the values that you have and the strategic move for change? I love the discipline and responsibility together. Yeah, yeah go ahead. You know, the... Navajo have a saying in Navajo that that's, talks about how being in balance and understanding, you know, there's anger, there's love, there's a lot of different emotions, but to be in balance, you're not reactive. It's called walking in beauty. And that idea that that reactive is is out of balance. If you if you're aware 360 degrees around you of what is going on, what's in motion. If you're struggling for that eagle-eye perspective, then you're more apt to make wise decisions and, and find ways of compromise and working together with people who share values than if you're reacting, just reacting, just having that kind of gut level, no. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of different ways that that can happen. For me, it's come through mindfulness, somatics, and body practices that help me examine when I'm being reactive and come back to center. But there are other, there are obviously other practices that can help 
that as well. I'm also mindful of your time. You've got a lot going on. So one of the questions I like to close with is around kind of offering your experience and insights to other people who might want to be change makers. So you can take that direction, the question in whatever direction you want, but one might be, what would you say to youth who want to find their role or want to enter into change making, but don't quite know how to do it? I think that the an important step is to find an elder that is wise. And I'll tell you right now as an elder, not all elders are wise. Not all elders have had a practice of reflection or have come to terms with their values. So finding an elder who's been to a few rodeos, <laughs> who, who knows the ups and downs, the ins and outs, and who has reflected on life experience, that is one. Number two, reflection. Make it a practice every day. Thinking at the beginning or the end of the day, whichever suits you, where did you go? What did you do? Did, did you move closer to your horizon? goals. Did you move back? What can you do tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And then lastly, to see oneself as a part of something much larger than one your individual self and to seek out and to create community wherever you are. And it's not easy. It's not simple, but it is something that will give you a lifeline yeah. It's a lifeline to be in community if it's three people or four, mm -hmm. where, where you're sharing the ups and downs, the ins and outs, and, and also where you share some kind of values alignment, where you, you can feed off of one another. And, and that's important. And I say also get involved in social movements. Organizing the Native Organizers Alliance, our, our motto is, Organizing is our medicine. This helps us heal. It helps us understand who we are and, and what our role is and how we can be responsible to our descendants and carry out our ancestral responsibilities as Native peoples. We know that from time immemorial, they have tried to separate us from our culture, land, language, from our future. And yet, Native peoples continue to thrive despite all the obstacles since first content. I really think it's that idea that organizing and, and, do, and bringing people together for the good of health and well-being of our communities is real medicine. It really is. It really is. It keeps you going in hard times. It makes you feel more empowered in community. It has helps you build networks of people who can hold you when you're having a hard time and you can hold them. You learn how to show up with one another and you begin to live into the world you want. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much, Judith, for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, I really appreciate the invitation and I, I love Minnesota. My, fam <laughs> my family lives there. They married yes. Minnesotan. So I love their I just love Minnesota. Oh, thank you. Yes, that's where I met you first. And I hope to be able to see you again sometime soon. I'm sure. Yes. Thank you so much, Judith. Thank you, Beth. Take good care.
Thank you for listening to Change Making Connections. I hope it has supported your social justice and leadership journey. This podcast was produced by the fantastic team at Alt Marketing Consulting. If you enjoyed listening to our show, please subscribe for future episodes and offer up a review wherever you catch your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for future episodes. Be well.